Hope you guys are doing well. I'm glad we get to worship together, and I'm glad that you're here to be a part of our assembly this morning. We have visitors. Again, we welcome each one of you and look forward to seeing you again uh, very, very, very soon. Hope you've had a, some of you may be here because of the holiday weekend. Hope you've had a, a good few days, maybe uh, visiting family and getting to take a day or two off from work, but glad that uh, we get to be here together today. Uh, several years ago, on one of our trips to Tanzania, we had a layover in Amsterdam for a few hours. I think that's happened maybe a few times, but one of those times we had a longer layover than normal, and we got to go outside of the airport and, and um, see a few things, you know, and, and, t- and just walk, kind of walk around the city. Kids and I, that year, um, and some others, went to the house of Anne Frank, you know, the place where the little Jewish girl in Amsterdam, this was during Nazi occupation back in the 19, late, well, I guess it would be the 1940s, early 1940s, when the Nazis occupied the Netherlands, and um, Anne Frank was hidden by a family, and there was this room upstairs where you could go, you could walk around the house, and you could see where she hid and where she wrote her diary. She was later uh, betrayed by some folks in, who knew she was there, and she was arrested, and she, was, she ended up dying in one of, the, one of the death camps there in the 1940s, and 19, uh, near the end of the war, I think. Uh, it's an interesting story. You go back and look at how different countries responded to the occupation of the Nazis in the ni- late 1930s and early 1940s. And Holland had some pretty courageous folks, you know, some pretty courageous people. One of the things that the, the Nazis would do during that time is they wanted the, the doctors in the occupied areas to withhold care or, in some cases, to actively lead to the death of those who were elderly or terminally ill or, in some other way, at least from a Nazi perspective, unworthy of life. In 1941, the doctors in the Netherlands uh, resisted that, and they simply would not obey the order. They wouldn't obey the orders of the Nazis to kill those who were terminally ill or those who were older. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't obey. That was 1941. Sixty years later, Holland, same country, of course, earned the dubious honor of being the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide when the Dutch Senate legalized euthanasia. It's amazing, isn't it? Sixty years. Malcolm Mugridge has noted about that particular transition, it took just one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? Oddly, in 1941, it was the doctors themselves in Holland who resisted the orders of the Nazis. In 2001, it was the doctors themselves who led the way in promoting the practice of euthanasia. Regardless of how you look at it, the 20th century was a bad, bad century for life. Uh, You look at it historically, and it's fascinating to trace the trends that began in the Western world, especially after the enlightenment of the 18th century and going on for the next 200 years and some things that happened, um, you see in the 20th century, and you, you study that, that, that time frame, and according to one estimate at least, about 203 million people died as a result of what they call democide, which is when a government sponsors mass execution. You've got a genocide when a people of a certain ethnic group or eliminated or killed, murdered, slaughtered, 
such as happened in the 1930s and 40s. A democide is when a government sponsors genocide or in, in some other way it expands beyond genocide to the killing of just mass, mass people. A democide, 203 million people died in the 20th century as a result of that. 203 million. If you were to line up 203 million people, by the way, that number, just, just if you're you want to fact check me, that number was given in 1994, which left, of course, about six years for things that happened in Rwanda and some of the things that happened and still are happening in Sudan and other places. So that 203 million number is probably a little low. But just take the 203 million number, if you were to line up that number of people and they were to march, march across this stage, for example, at the rate of three miles per hour, that's a 20-minute mile, three miles per hour. It would take them just a little less than six months just to walk across the stage. That's how many 203 million people would be. If you were to lay that number of people down head to toe with an average height of, let's say, five feet tall, that line would stretch from Honolulu, Hawaii, to Washington, D.C., and back 22 times. That's how many 203 million people are. And that's just the number of people killed by government-sponsored murder. 20th century wasn't a good year for us. Wasn't a good year at all. You can trace it kind of like uh, some, some trends that happened following the Enlightenment, following the 18th century, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the emphasis, of, well, the de-emphasis on faith and the emphasis on science and reason, there was a spirit in the 19th and 20th centuries where we could conquer anything because of what we were learning about science. And so through the application of reason, we were able to learn so many things about saving life, about preserving life, with the medical accomplishments that were discovered in the 20th century, or 19th century, and then 20th century, and how we could save life. Many of that same technology led to the ability to kill people at a previously unimaginable scale. And when you look at how this happened, historically speaking, out of the Enlightenment, there was a de-emphasis on God and an emphasis on reason and science. And what had previously been God, in, at least in some sense, there was the acknowledgement of God. When God was taken, at least culturally speaking, when God in the West was taken off that throne... What was put on the throne instead of God was the nation, the commitment to this ideology of the, of the nation, this patriotism that you see ran amok in so many different ways. And what happened there, I'm going to get to text in a minute. I want to just stay with me for a second. What happened there with the de-emphasis of God and the emphasis on science and technology, you had the 20th century. So many people were thinking, so many people in the West were thinking that with, the, with science, it was going to be the best century ever because of all that we could do. But science enabled us to kill people, kill millions of people. And when, when you take this restraint of God off of the culture, which happened in the 19th century, what you get is 203 million people being killed by governments in the 20th century. When you can kill millions of people and you don't have the restraint of being judged by God, that's what you got. That's what happens. It is a de-emphasis on human life and an emphasis on self and 
allegiance to one's nation, no matter the consequences, no matter the direction that nation goes. It's kind of a scary thing. The sixth commandment is do not kill. Exodus 20, verse 13. Do not kill or do not, do not murder. It's a fascinating thing to study this. I want us to think about life this morning. I want us to think about life and all of its human forms and think about, just think about the way that God talks to us about it. If you look in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, which of course Jesus emphasizes this, and we'll look at a little bit of that in the New Testament today, but Exodus chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, you got this fascinating thing. And, and so God says in verse 13, you shall not murder. That's the way the ESV translates. So I'll talk about maybe some possible other translations in a second. But um, you don't murder, don't murder, don't kill. Got this emphasis on human life. You wonder, and I think it's important for us to look at the foundation of that. Why does God say this? Why is God so concerned? Why, is that, why did that make the top ten list, you know? That made the top ten. There are a lot of other commandments given, but one of the top ten, one of the ten commandments that kind of summarize the whole law, God says, don't kill, don't take human life. You know, why, why is that? I think it's important to look back. And In fact, if you look back at the very first part of the chapter, look in Exodus 20. This is the beginning of the ten commandments. God spoke all these words saying, this is important, I am the Lord your God. Now, think about it like this. you got the, the Ten Commandments given on two tablets, right? you got one through five on the, on the left tablet. you got six through ten on the right tablet. And, and, and it's interesting to look at how, in many ways, these correspond. you got commandment number one on the left tablet corresponding to commandment number six on the right tablet. you got commandment number two on the left tablet corresponding to commandment number seven, Three to eight, four to nine, five to ten. You get that? You see, that? see that image there? One corresponds to six. And I think it's, it's pretty clear when God starts the second, what I call the second table commandment, second tablet commandments, the first one of the second tablet is don't kill, don't murder, don't take human life. You've got to protect human life, right? That's the emphasis on the second tablet. Well, you correspond that with commandment number one, and commandment number one is, and so these two are related in some sense, commandment number one is what? I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And I think that reflects <clears throat> this emphasis on the importance of life because of something significant. And maybe you're wondering, well, I don't see how not murdering corresponds to the identity of God. What is the connection there? What, 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 what is this what is the connection between not murdering and the fact that God identifies himself as I am the Lord your God, don't have any other gods before me? Let me show you. Let me show you the significance of that. I want to turn over one book to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to read you something else. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. There's a pretty important connection that we need to see. Genesis 1, 26 says, And God said, Let us make man. You could probably finish that next little phrase there. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let, this, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Do you see that emphasis there? At the very beginning, on the sixth day, you know, God creating everything else, God comes to the sixth day and he creates Adam and Eve and he says... This is the ultimate creation. This is the culmination of the creation week. It's all good. It's all good. But Adam and Eve is, is where God had been building, you know, for six days. 
And he says, in the image of God, he created them. Now let me, connecting a couple more dots, all right? I want to go forward a few chapters to Genesis chapter 9. And I'd like for you to hear what we read in Genesis 9 and verse 6. This is after the flood. After the flood. God takes Noah and his family off the ark. And he gives this commandment. It's very clear. He says this, Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And listen to the end of verse 6. For, for God made man in his own image, right? In his own image. Why, why is it wrong to take human life? Because I am the Lord your God. Commandment number one which ties back to the creation week, wherein God creates you and me and every other human life in His own image. And in Genesis 9, He connects murdering or taking human life with that image of God, creation of Genesis 1. And so, God cares about human life because He made us in His image. Now, reading that creation story is pretty interesting uh, in a lot of different ways. And one of, the, one of the ways to read that story is, that telling of God's creation, is, is this idea of God establishing his reign over the earth. The, the language there in Genesis 1 and 2. We've talked about this before at Hoover, but just to remind you, you've got um, God using language when he's talking about this creation week. He uses language of, of, uh, of a king establishing reign a dominion over the land, over the earth. God is king. God is the one who is reigning. But they were very familiar with a certain way that things were done in the ancient world. And, and one of those things was when a king had dominion in a land, he would establish, he would, he, would, uh, he would put his own image throughout the land. So he would erect these statues, these monuments, and on those statues and monuments, he would have, the king would have his own image there. He would have a likeness of himself there. And so whenever you were walking through land, if you were ever wondering, who's in charge in this land? All you had to do is look at the nearest statue, the, the nearest monument. You'd see the king's image there, and you'd be reminded, oh, yeah, if you'd forgotten, oh, yeah, he is king of this land. Well, that language is used in Genesis 1 and 2. God created us in his own image, and he put us over the dominion. We, he gave us dominion over the earth. We are his vice regents. We are reigning with him. And so everywhere God has set up His image throughout the land, throughout the earth. You see this? Now where is His image? If you ever wonder, you're walking around the earth and you want to know who's, who's the king of this land. This is the way God intended it to be. You look and you, say, you see people. You see people, young and old, different cultures, different ethnicities. But in every one of them is the image of the king. The image of the king as a reflection of, that, of God, that reflection of divinity. That's how God originally intended it to be in Genesis 1 and 2, right when he created us. But what happened in Genesis 3 when we sinned against him, Adam and Eve's sin, is that that image in us was marred. It was distorted. But nonetheless, it's still there. All I want you to see here is, you may already know this, but just to emphasize it, why does God say human life is so important? Why does he say it matters so much? Because every human life, every human life is created in his image. 
every human life. The ones who are like us, the ones who are different from us. The ones whom the world regards as significant, the wealthy, the powerful, whatever. And the ones that the world regards as insignificant, the unborn, the helpless, the poor, the voiceless, the powerless, the marginalized, those human lives created in the image of God just as everyone. When God says don't kill, he's saying more than just don't kill. He's saying those lives are valuable because they're created in in his image. That's very important. One of the things I alluded to a second ago that I want to spend a couple minutes on is, is this translation question here. I'm reading from the ESV, and some of you are as well. Some of you have other translations, but probably most of your Bibles say, don't murder, or something like that, right? In Exodus 20 and verse 13, that's the way, that's the, way the ESV puts it. You shall not murder. Uh, of the ones that's, that use kill, uh, King James uses kill. So if you're using King James, you've got thou shalt not kill. If you're using uh, the American Standard Version, the one that was translated in 1901, you've got thou shalt not kill. If you're using the RSV, which is the Revised Standard Version, that was translated in 1940s and 50s, you've got you shall not kill, right? rest of them say don't murder. And which is right. There are some advantages to putting it murder. Because... It's obvious God is talking about murder here. At least that's part of what he's talking about. And the word translated kill or murder here does mean don't murder. That's what the word means. And so it can be translated that way. Because that's one of the things he's talking about. He's talking about we should not intentionally take human life. Murder. We shouldn't do that. Problem with translating it murder is that that's not all he's talking about. Because the word translated murder here, there's a different word God could have used for murder. This word can be translated murder. It can refer to murder. But it can also refer to things that we don't call murder. In fact, um, in some contexts of the Old Testament, it's used of accidental killing. Like when you have an accident and somebody's killed there, this word is used to apply to that. And, and, and that's why I, I, if... if if I were on a translation committee, which I am not and never will be on one, I would say, let's stick with the word kill and then let's explore what he means by that. Because murder is, un is unintentionally and unnecessarily restrictive to a specific kind of thing that I think of and you think of when I think of murder. This word includes that, but it includes other stuff. And I want to show you a little bit of what I think, what, well, what, what the text and other places will show us that God did intend. Um, one of the things, if you're using the ESV, which some of you are, we've got a footnote there. Your Bible probably has it. At least some of the translations, some of the ESVs have it. Here's, here's the, the footnote. Footnote says, the Hebrew word also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. Well, in, in some other places in, in, in the Law of Moses, in you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, especially in Numbers, this word is used to, to refer to things that we wouldn't call murder. We would, we would call this a, uh, you know, the taking of human life through, through carelessness or negligence or something. All I want you to see at this point is that if you think that the Sixth Commandment is only forbidding what happens a lot, 
when somebody out here intentionally takes a knife or a gun or some other weapon or some other method and kills someone, that that's what God is forbidding here? You would be right, but you wouldn't be completely right. Because this word is broader than that. And it, it, it includes more. And I'll, we'll talk about that in, uh, in a couple of minutes. So don't, don't kill, don't murder. Well, it means both. It means both. And so I think the generic kill is a little bit better here than murder because it helps us to uh, remember, helps us to dive a little bit more deeply and figure out what he's talking about. Let's think about, let's think about life and death, though. I'd like you, if you would, we're going to go to the New Testament here. This is one of the commandments where Jesus shed some light on it. Matthew chapter 5, if you would turn there with me. I want to read a few verses. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. In And in, uh, in, in Jesus', Jesus words here, he's, he's going to help us to think about what, what God intended to communicate when he said, don't, don't kill. I'll read that in just a second, but let me say just a couple things first about this. Just what we know so far about what it means not to kill, what it means not to murder. God is forbidding murder, obviously. Intentional taking of a human life. Um, that would be euthanasia. That would include suicide or self-murder. It would include the intentional taking of any human life. It would include abortion. And it is, it's a sad world we live in in so many ways. In this, what I'm afraid, I don't want to be, I don't want to overstate the case, but, but I'm afraid what in the 20th century has become more of a culture of death, of the taking of human life. Usually it's the taking of human life that's different from us different from me. Um, it is an, an unborn child. It is a person who's a different ethnicity than me or a different religion than, than mine or somebody who is weaker, somebody who, from, from, a, from a human perspective, from a, from a worldly perspective, maybe doesn't, isn't able to contribute as much of quote-unquote worth of value. It's a scary thing when our world trends as we've trended in the last 150 years or so. It's kind of scary. So, so just looking at, at this emphasis on life here, then, then we, we understand that, that there's this, this, this culture of death, I'm afraid, that has, has come out of this historical trends as we trended away from God. It's no surprise. And we trend away from God, who's the creator of life, that we trend away from life itself. And we get confused. We get confused about what lives are worth protecting and which ones aren't. That's a scary place to be. In Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Jesus goes beneath the surface here, and he helps us to see the intent. Let's read this. Let's follow along, if you would. Matthew 5, 21, beginning. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and, lest you, and, you, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. Now, I'm not going to explore that text in great detail, but what I want you to see here is that Jesus... Under, he's the one who gave the original command, don't kill, right? He's saying, you've got to look beneath the surface here. Uh, I didn't just mean don't murder back in Exodus 20 when I wrote that. Yeah, that's not all I meant. 
I meant for you to think about the intent. I meant for you to think about life. I meant for you to think about hearts and motives and how in other ways we kill. And he says in our text in the Sermon on the Mount there, Matthew 5, he says that we're violating the, the sixth commandment when we speak evil of other people, when we insult our brothers, when we say, you fool, when we, when, when we are angry, when our, when our anger causes us to say or do things that are wrong. He says the intent of the sixth commandment was for us to, for us to recognize the value of all life and then the varied ways in which we violate that commandment. So you see, what, you see what I'm saying here earlier when I was talking about the different ways of translating it? It's not just talking about murder. What Jesus helps us see, that's right. Because he says it doesn't just mean don't murder. It means look at your heart. It means look at how you value life. How do you look at the other person? How do you, how do you apply this? How do you, how do you think about the way that it engages your own culture? I want to spend, I don't have much time left, but, but let me do this. I think we Christians need to think about how this commandment applies to us. We've talked about murder. We've talked about the various ways in which taking human life is done in our, in our world. Euthanasia, we've talked about abortion. But, but what does this say to you and me? Most of you this morning are against murder. I think probably all of you are against murder. Right? Most people in this assembly are against abortion and euthanasia. So are we done? Or, or, or maybe does God say, I think Jesus helps us to see the answer to this question, but maybe does God say something more in this text that would even apply to a, to a church setting like this one? Let's, let's think about how it, how it might play out in different kinds of contexts. Let me throw, throw out a couple of just kind of hot-button issues, some things that, that Christians ought to think seriously about. What about capital punishment? How does, ex, how does the commandment not to kill, how does it apply to capital punishment? Well, you've got to look at the Ten Commandments in the context. And, of course, in the, in the Law of Moses, you have an emphasis on, on justice. And, and, and the Law of Moses clearly said that capital punishment is a part of that system. When people commit certain capital crimes, God spells out that sometimes, in fact, in, in, in the case of murder, in Genesis 9-6, when somebody commits murder, then they will be put to death because they've taken human life, right? And so you look at that in, in the Old Testament, you'll see that God is saying that capital punishment doesn't violate the Sixth Commandment, right? And then we would look at places like Romans 13, where God says that the government, God has, God has given power to the government to wield his sword. And I believe that means that a government can when just, when executed justly and fairly, wield the sword of justice. Romans chapter 13. Now having said that, we need to recognize as well, and I think, I think Christians especially need to think about this, how, how do we, in creating a culture of life and being advocates of life, right, of human life, in every setting, how do we even think about something like that? It seems to me at the very least, Christians should be thinking seriously and deeply about how we engage the current practice of capital punishment. Surely we ought to be asking questions like, is the way we're doing capital punishment, is that, is that a fulfillment of the Old Testament? Is it, is it being consistent with God's emphasis on life? 
I may have mentioned to you a few years ago, I read a book called um, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, who's an attorney, established the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery that uh, advocates for people on death row. And it's a fascinating story of, of, of the death penalty and how it's carried out in Alabama and other states in the South especially. There was a story told in there about a man named um, Anthony Ray Hinton, whose name may be familiar to you. He spoke at Samford, uh, I don't know, three months ago, maybe six months ago. And when I saw him speaking there and read a little bit about his bio, I thought, that sounds, sounds familiar to me. And, 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 and it made, you know, connected that his story was told in this book. He wrote a book, Anthony Ray Hinton wrote a book called The Sun Does Shine. If you've heard of it, I'd encourage, I'd encourage you to read it. And it's a story, it's, it's, a, it's kind of like a biography, it's a telling of his story, Mr. Hinton, who spent 30 plus years on death row in the state of Alabama for a crime he didn't commit. He was arrested as a black man, uh, and so many things in the trial, uh, were, it was obvious that his race was a very important factor in his being convicted and put on death row, and ultimately he was exonerated by uh, DNA and so on. It's a fascinating story. I say that to say this, what if capital punishment, as practiced in some places, is very closely tied to ethnicity? What if it's tied to socioeconomic status? What if, what if certain human lives aren't being as valued as other human lives? I'm just suggesting that we as Christians need to think more deeply than simply allying ourselves with a certain kind of perspective and doing so without thinking about the ways in which something might be carried out. It's a dangerous place for us to be who are advocates of life, right? Even when God authorizes something, so often it's carried out unjustly and unfairly. And we as Christians ought to think seriously, I think, about that. The same thing might apply to war. We see wars certainly carried out, and God divinely authorized certain wars, specifically in a certain time frame in the Old Testament, right? Uh, for a long time, many Christians have advocated what would be called just war, that there are some wars there to carry out justly. And, and um, just war, uh, you know, a fair war is when certain criteria are in place. And I think in our own time, the 20th century, certainly World War II would be like the, I don't know, the poster child for just war in that if you're arguing for that perspective, certainly a government standing up for good, right, is, is one of those situations. But again, even in situations when we're talking about war, Christians ought to think, okay, how does my conviction that certain wars might be just, how does that, how does that play out with our convictions that all lives are created in the image of God? At the very least, we should be reluctant. We should be one of the last ones to jump on board, it seems to me, and certainly advocating for certain wars to be carried out when lives are going to be taken. Only, all I'm saying, I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't say or doesn't suggest in principle that certain wars are not just, only that Christians need to think very seriously about this given this clear teaching from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 that God creates all human life in his own image. I mean, we could go on and on with, with this, with talk about racism and, and immigration and, and the various ways that people on the margins of society are treated. But here's the emphasis. The emphasis and how we ought to explore all these different issues as Christians is we need to understand that God is pro-life. He's pro-life. He's pro-all human life. 
He's pro-unborn life. He's pro-postborn life. He's pro-life like me. He's pro-life like the other. He's pro-life of my ethnicity, and he's pro-life of the other ethnicity and everyone. He's pro-life. He's pro-life. And, and, and so we ought to explore the nuances as Christians of what that looks like, you know, in specific kinds of settings. In um, Exodus 20, he's not just saying it's wrong to murder. He's saying that we need to be for life. And we ought to be very reluctant before we get on board with those things that do take life. Now, certain times that is necessary, of course. One uh, Jewish writer, and I'll close, I'll close with this, this Jewish philosopher who went through uh, the Holocaust, by the way. He's Jewish, and he said that the Sixth Commandment in Exodus 20, he said that you shall not murder means nothing less than, quote, you shall defend the life of the other. So this Jewish writer in speculating about what Exodus 20 means, what the commandment means, is saying that it means something more than not actively taking life. He's saying that there's embedded in that commandment this emphasis on life. And so taken to its logical conclusion, he's saying in order to obey it, we need to be people who not only don't actively take, take the lives of others, but we actively protect the lives of those whose lives are being marginalized or devalued by society. God is a God of life. We'll start out. I asked Will to read John 1, 1 through 5. And though we haven't studied John 1, 1 through 5, I want to close with a gist of what he says in that text. Because in John 1, Jesus says that Jesus is life, right? He's the life. God's will for you and me is that we might be living. God is concerned about your life, your human life. He's concerned about your eternal life. In fact, when Jesus came and he went to the tomb on that Friday afternoon, God resurrected him on Sunday, showing that God's, God's pro-life. You know, God is for life. He's for the lives of every one of you, for all of us and for everyone. He's, he's pro-every life. And, and what he wants for us is for us to live eternally. In fact, he gave his life, showing that human life is not the ultimate value because Jesus was willing to lay down his life so that you and I might live. That's the greatest act of self-sacrifice the world has ever seen for Jesus, for God, to give his own life so that you and I could live eternally. That's the promise that God gives us all. If you're not a Christian this morning, we invite you, we invite you to come to Christ to give your life to him. He will save yours. He will give you life. Not just life here, but life forever. He will give it to you. He will bless you. If you're ready to become a Christian, you express that, that desire by falling down at his feet and saying, Lord, I want to be yours. I want to be yours. Turning away from sin, repenting, being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, letting his blood wash all of your sins away. A beautiful, a beautiful thing when God takes your life and he helps you to reshape it into what he created you to be. And it's a, a wonderful thing. And I hope that maybe there's someone here who's ready to become a Christian. Perhaps uh, you're here as someone who's not inside, uh, who, who, is, who has become a Christian, but you need to come back to him today. Uh, if you need to ask for prayers, if any, anything we can do for you spiritually, I hope you know that we're here for you and you can come now. Let's stand. Let's sing this song. If you need to respond, please come now.